Welcome to listen to the University of Oulu's podcast called An Interview with Honorary Doctor. In this podcast, we will get to know more closely the lives and careers of honorary doctors who will be conferred in the 11th conferment ceremony of the University of Oulu. The university has invited persons for conferment who have collaborated significantly with researchers in the University of Oulu. In addition, invitations have been made to persons who have distinguished themselves significantly in other ways in the society and for the benefit of operations of the university. Conferment of an honorary doctorate is the highest honor the university can confer to a person. My name is Simo Kekalainen and our guest today will be honorary doctor Professor Jeremy Searle. Welcome Jeremy. Thank you. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here, Jeremy. And I think um, we want to start from the very, very beginning. And my first question to you today will be, where does the story of Jeremy Searle start? Well, my interest in uh, biological science, I'm a, I'm a professor who specializes in, in biological sciences, really originated from an interest in natural history as a child. And so as a child, I remember I, I got enthused by bird watching just by a, a chance finding of a, of a bird book that somebody had just left on the path. And I picked it up and I thought, this is interesting. There's lots of different birds. And I, I used it to identify birds. And I, I basically used it for a family holiday to, um, to spend my time uh, finding out about lots of different species of birds. And I got completely hooked by bird watching. I did return that book to its owner eventually, but I used it for a while. And um, I got enthused not only about birds, but about other aspects of natural history, butterflies, flowers, mammals. And, and I think that, that sort of interest in natural history led to me, as I moved on through my teenage years to to a desire to study biology and and from there I I, I studied biology at university and and went on to a career in biology. So as I understand you did your bachelor's in zoology at Oxford and PhD in genetic at Aberdeen University. Um, can you tell us more about how the career or the path to the academics then happened when you started your studies at the university? Yes, I think my uh, undergraduate degree in zoology was, was really a continuation of that interest in biology I, I built up as a child through natural history and, and obviously um, studying biology at school I and zoology is studying animals and I I, I'm, I really enjoy plants but I I had a particular interest in in animals and, and understanding their diversity and their functioning and so uh, I studied zoology as as an undergraduate and I, I continue to be enthused um, in in those respects and uh, in terms and started thinking about you know, subject areas I would like to do uh, as a PhD. Um, and I, what I wanted to do was to um, study organisms in their natural environments, animals in their natural environments. But I was particularly uh, interested 
in genetics because you could apply genetics to those um, animals in their natural environment and, and learn about evolutionary questions. But it gave you a, a precision that other aspects of um, field biology uh, couldn't provide to the same degree. I really like the precision of genetics. It, it's, it's got an almost mathematical quality about it. It is often said that in research, the subject chooses the researcher and not the other way around. Was this the case with you too, Jeremy? It, it was in terms of my PhD. I've already mentioned how my PhD was in the subject of genetics. But the precise um, research area really arose from the fact that I, I attended a uh, field expedition when I was an undergraduate student. I was invited to go to, to Finland um, to partake in this uh, expedition. And it really enthused me and, and it, it led led me to realize that there were lots of unanswered questions based on the, on the work that I had been doing on this expedition and, and that I could extend that into a PhD. So the, the, the expedition itself was, was actually um, studying uh, a, a species of small mammal called a common shrew. And the extraordinary thing about common shrews is that they show a lot of variation in chromosome number. So we have a chromosome number of 46 chromosomes and, and almost all humans have exactly the same chromosome number. But in common shrews, they have very variable chromosome numbers between uh, 20 chromosomes and 32 chromosomes. And, and understanding this variation, I realised, would be really important because, and obviously this was a reason why... why um, this expedition was taking place was to to understand this variation and and the reason I, I did my PhD was to kind of further that and it was because um, we realized that closely related species often differ in chromosome number and so if you can understand the basis of variation of chromosome number within a species it can help you understand why there should be variation between species and the grounds to think that variation in chromosome number may be one of the driving forces that leads to that difference that, that leads to two new species. So can help you understand the way that, that um, two species split from one ancestral form. So the origin of species, if you like. Very interesting. And in addition to common true, you have also studied other uh, animals who have an interesting connection with humans, for example. So uh, I've heard that you've uh, studied the evolutionary history of house mouse. So, and your findings have demonstrated that house mouse uh, is a great model to make inferences about human history. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the historical connection between house mouse and the history of humans? Yes, I, the, 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 I can tell you as perhaps to start off with why, why I um, uh, ended up in this pathway of looking at connections between house mice um, and human history. And it actually started off with um, Again, these studies of, of chromosome variation. Um, 
there's an island in the Atlantic called Madeira, and it's rather extraordinary because uh, the house mice on Madeira, again, show this property of very variable chromosome number, um, ranging from uh, 22 chromosomes to 40 chromosomes. So again, another species which shows this extraordinary variation within a species that might help you understand why there's variation between species. And so I studied the house mice on this island of Madeira, and then it suddenly um, it suddenly dawned on me that that I it would to understand this this chromosome variation. It's important for me to understand where these mice came from. And the thing about um, house mice and the evolution of house mice is that um, they have got to all parts of the world with humans. And so house mice obviously didn't swim to the island of Madeira. They were taken there by humans. And I had a clear expectation that the, the humans that took the house mice to the island of Madeira were Portuguese because Madeira has been a, um, a territory of Portugal uh, since its discovery in, in the early 1400s. And so you would expect the house mice there to be have been taken there from Portugal. So there should be a tangible connection with um, between the house mice on, on in Portugal and the house mice on, on Madeira. And the way to show that tangible connection is with genetics. If you can show genetic similarity, that that uh, will show that connection that the house mice from uh, Madeira have been taken there uh, by people from Portugal. What I found was that the house mice in, on the island of Madeira were nothing like the house mice on in in Portugal genetically but they were very similar to the house mice in Northern Europe. And this was, this was extraordinary to me, um, that the genetics was showing this story that the house mice didn't come from Portugal, but actually came from Northern Europe. And I tried to think, well, what historical reason might there be for this? And the reason, of course, could be that the Vikings actually... Uh, went on boats and went uh, around the uh, Portugal and the Iberian Peninsula around a thousand years ago. And if a boat was blown off course, it might have ended up on the island of Madeira. And I think this is what happened, that, that a Viking ship was blown off course, ended up in Madeira, the mice hopped out, uh, the the Vikings went on, uh, they were very good when they were blown off course and finding their own way back, and went on their merry way um, uh, to uh, Iberia and the Mediterranean. But they left the, the mice as a, as a historical signal of the fact that they'd visited there. And the only way that was discovered was by doing these genetic studies on the on the house mice on Madeira and comparing them genetically with, with house mice throughout their range and seeing that connection with Northern Europe rather than the expected connection with Portugal. Now, house mice have been transported by humans, as I've said, throughout the world. And you can do the same sort of thing in terms of looking at 
connections between mice that have colonized in a certain place and all the possible source areas. And that tells you the way the mice have been taken to a particular place. And because it, the mice have um, showing this genetic signal, it must mean that humans have transported them there because that's the only way they would have got to these places. So mice are found throughout the world. Their, their natural distribution is probably quite limited in, in the Near East, but everywhere else they've got there with humans. And through these sort of genetic studies, we can, we can see the way the mice have been transported and therefore telling us about human history. Sorry, that was a very long answer, but I hope it answered your question. No, but that was an absolutely fascinating story. I'm wondering, have you been able to recognize any other animals uh, who and which tell something about the history of humans when you focus on the history of the particular animal? Yes, we, we've, we have studied other species. Um, and one of the examples I could perhaps mention is uh, a species of vole um, that is found on the Orkney Islands. These are islands um, to the north of Scotland. And this particular species of vole is not actually found elsewhere in Britain. So the only place in the British Isles this species of vole is found in is on the Orkney Islands. It's a species that is extremely common throughout the rest of Europe but not in the British Isles, apart from this, this one archipelago where it's found. Anyway, again, through genetic comparisons of the, this species of vole on the Orkney Islands with uh, different parts of Europe, we were able to show that the, the vole um, would have been transported there from, from the Benelux countries, basically either Belgium or, or the Netherlands, that sort of area. And this is really interesting because there are archaeological remains of these voles dating back to Neolithic times. So what we're doing here is saying that this vole uh, was transported again by humans from, uh, from continental Europe to the Orkney Islands. And we can say uh, where it came from and we can use archaeology to say when it was when it arrived there. Um, and so this is telling us something about the sort of um, maritime movements of Neolithic people, which, as you can imagine, is something we know rather little about. So, again, um, we've got small mammals telling us something about human history, actually giving us it's, it's not a replacement for all the other ways we learn about human history through artifacts or through um, through written, the written word, but it's an additional way. And, and I like to think of um, small mammals and other organisms that one can study in this way as living artifacts, um, something that can tell us about human history in, in a really interesting and novel way. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, Jeremy, as, as we just heard, you've been working in a truly multidisciplinary way in the crossroads of different scientific fields, combining ecology, biology, genetics and human history. And we just discussed the links between the history of animals and history of humans. If you think back at your career, are there any other memorable research findings you would rate as your most important ones? 
Yeah, I, I've had a number of strands in my research, and I think you've summarised very well um, the range of interests that, that I've got. And um, this interest in, in looking at the colonisation history of um, small mammals uh, linked with humans uh, really uh, links quite well with other research I've done, which is the natural colonization of, of a number of small mammal species. So in this case, what I'm thinking about is thinking of the distributions of particular species and how they have changed over time. And in particular, trying to understand how the current distribution has been attained. And a lot of my work has been based in, in Europe and um, what, what is important there in terms of thinking about the, the colonisation by, by species into the areas we see now is that um, about 20,000 years ago, there was a massive ice sheet over, over northern Europe, um, covering uh, the whole of Finland, actually, um, but other parts of Scandinavia, much of, Brit uh, much of British Isles and, and, and uh, other areas. And, and south of that ice sheet was really inhospitable conditions. So species that are currently found in these northern areas um, would have spent their, that period further south. And what I've been able to do is, again, use genetic markers to work out where species were during that really cold spell and study how they have moved to attain their current distribution from where they came from. And again, the, the principle is very much the same as I described for the, for the Madeira mice. You, what you want to do is think about possible source areas for, for the area colonised, compare genetically the, the organism in the area colonised with those possible source areas and look for the closest fit and therefore from that make inferences about the route of colonisation and the, 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 the way in which the distribution of that species has changed over time. So I, uh, I've done a lot of work in, in that sort of area and, and, and I think we've... we've had a number of really quite important findings, for instance, that the people have more or less assumed that um, many species are uh, spent this, this uh, period of extreme cold known as the height of the last glaciation, really in very southern areas in, in, uh, on the Mediterranean peninsulas. But we've actually had evidence that, that some of those species actually survived further north in, in Central Europe as well. So that's, that's one other area that I, I have done a lot of uh, research in. And, and uh, as, as well as that, I've continued my studies on the origin of new species, particularly using uh, chromosomal variation, really following on from what, what I did as a PhD student. And our study Studies have, again, come up with some really interesting insights. Um, probably the most interesting insights is that we've found situations where you would expect two forms, uh, when they come into contact, would lead to, to new species being formed. But actually, we've seen the reverse process known as despeciation, 
And so we've done a lot of work that has um, that has been informative in that direction as well. Sounds like that there is still much more to be researched in the natural world. It is so vast, and we're discovering new species um, every day almost. Uh, Jeremy, currently uh, you are working as a professor at the Cornell University in Ithaca, United States. Um, what are you working on currently, and what motivated you to move from the United Kingdom to the USA? Because I understand that you had a very extensive career in postdoc and professorships uh, in the United Kingdom. Yes, in terms of my uh, my current work, um, I'm actually the chair of. Uh, the department that I'm in, I'm in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And as you can imagine, at this time, uh, being a chair of department of about 150 people, I, I'm, I'm very busy. We're, you know, spending a lot of my try, time trying to keep my colleagues safe from COVID. I mean, it's been an extraordinary year for us. So, so I would say that, that my current activities are, are very much around that um, that realm as as uh, a leader within the department. In terms of the reason for um, moving to the United States from the United Kingdom, it really it, it wasn't because uh, we were uh, I, I was unhappy in the in the United Kingdom. My my wife and I both um, were professors at uh, the University of York. Uh, and we were both very happy there and had had uh, very uh, enjoyable uh, careers. But but we felt when our children um, had finished their school education, we we thought about um, the opportunity of a of a new challenge. And this opportunity came up for us to go to Cornell University. And in my case, I was able to join uh, this Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And it, it's, it's actually one of the best departments of its type in the world. So I, I feel very privileged to have had the opportunity to make that, um, make that switch. And I've, I've really enjoyed it uh, here and, and found it a very stimulating environment for, for doing research. So, Jeremy, as someone who has background and experience from both uh, the United Kingdom and United States uh, from the academic environments, do you see any differences or similarities between these two worlds? So, I, I definitely see strong similarities, and I've been very lucky in my academic career in that wherever I have been, there has been a desire to, to mix uh, a strong research effort with really high quality research among my, all my colleagues, together with um, education, and I and I really feel passionately that it's so important that um, in a university environment that there is a, a strong research effort, and so we not only do we have this opportunity to, to teach young people for them to uh, learn about particular subjects. Obviously, in my case, it's, it's in these areas of ecology and evolutionary biology. But that there is a strong research program going on at the same time, and, and the, the students are learning from that research program. And indeed, indeed, it's really important for undergraduate students to be participating in that program. And it's 
it's a it's a wonderful thing to have both processes going on. In terms of differences uh, between the US and and the UK, I think uh, I think there are there are some differences. Um, I think that you. I wouldn't say that the UK uh, or the US is is better than the other. They're, they're just just a bit, bit different. I I really enjoy in the US. There's a very much a, a, a strong can-do attitude that that um, no holds barred. You you if you want to do something, you go ahead and do it. And um, and that's not just in in a uh, an academic environment. It's just a, a uh, if you like a cultural trait in in the US, and I've I've really appreciated that sort of drive that that I see uh, among my colleagues, and it, you know I've I've felt it's it's helped me as well. So I, I really like that aspect of of um, the American academic environment and American society in general. Let's talk briefly about the general requirements and framework for for a research career. I think there will be many junior researchers listening to this podcast and interview. And as someone who has decades of experience in this field, uh, could you give three points that you consider the most important for a successful research career? Well, I think the most important uh, point in terms of a successful research career is to be really passionate about what you're working on. You you internally have to feel that this is something that that really interests you and that you want to to do it, and that it's 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 something that you're so intrigued by that you want to discover as much as you possibly can. So I think that's the the number one thing. But you do have to be in the real world. So whatever system you're working on, uh, when we're talking about biological systems, it's got to be something that is actually possible. I mean, there's so many things out there that that are really interesting to to learn about, but are really just too difficult to work on. You've got to choose, choose something that is is uh, is possible. So I think those two things are really critical. And I think the third thing I would say is that when you do your research, that you have to be incredibly rigorous in that research. And I think you need to have a program which uh, where you're asking particular scientific questions and, and a very hypothesis-driven and, and, and getting true answers that are going to kind of stand the test of time. So if we put this, uh, these three tips into a scientific equation, it would mean that passion plus understanding plus being rigorous uh, equals success. I'd say that's true, yes. But we also have to take into account collaboration as it plays such a big part in research. And you've already been sharing uh, stories about how you went on a field trip in Sweden and how you've been collaborating with different research groups all over the world. Uh, I would like to ask, what are your methods of collaboration, Jeremy? Well, I think I want to make a preamble that that all the things I've been saying up to now about uh, the discoveries um, and my interests and everything like that have been 
very much affected by other people around me, by by mentors and uh, by the people who worked with me, my students, my postdocs and staff. And um, that whole collaborative effort involving all these people has been just enormously important for everything I've achieved. And so I would say... I would say collaboration is a is a really key thing, and so you could say that could be the, you know, the fourth element in terms of success in 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 research. And I think the way um, collaborations work is um, that the the people involved in the collaboration should have different roles. I mean, it, it, each person should be contributing something, something different. And th- those those different things that are being contributed can can be very varied. But but that that is an important element. I think another element that's important is that to keep a good collaboration going, there needs to be a lot of interaction between people so that you all know what you're doing and that that everyone is, if you like, working on the same page. A third element, I think, is just, I suppose, what you you might call etiquette. It's just um, being really sensitive to to other people's views and other people's feelings, and that it's really important to be supportive and kind to to other people that you're working with. And it's not only... Does that create a nice social environment that everybody will enjoy what they're doing? But it, it's just it's just helping to to make the work go better because people are going to going to be working better if they feel feel well supported. So I think I think those three elements are all really important. Indeed, it sounds like a true team sport, what research actually is in the real world. Uh, But Jeremy, you have been collaborating with researchers in the Ecology and Genetics Research Unit at the University of Oulu for over 10 years. How was this connection formed in the first place? Yeah, that's that's an interesting story. And and, um, I suppose, again, illustrates the way that collaborations, particularly collaborations, involving uh, people from different countries uh, are often formed. Um, And in this case, it was at a scientific meeting, again in in Sweden, so I've got this kind of linkage which involves Sweden quite a lot. And at that meeting, uh, there was uh, somebody from the University of Oulu, uh, Mina Ruakonen, and she was an expert on, on geese. And... I went to talk to her at the meeting because I had been involved in a small study um, in the UK looking at um, the domestication history of geese. And the study was extremely small because um, it was really just um, studying uh, goose bones from an archaeological site close to York in the UK where I was working. And... um, really trying to distinguish between (coughs) geese that were wild-caught geese and domestic geese. Anyway, I realised from that small study that that we didn't really have a good picture of the domestication history of of domestic geese. 
And that contrasted with many other domestic animals like uh, pigs and dogs and cattle and sheep, which we had a really pretty good understanding of, of where they were domesticated and the domestic, you know, the, the history of that domestication process. So when I talked to Minna, um, I said, well, there's this, there's this gap, is the is there something, I've done this very small study, you're, a, you're an expert on geese, is there an opportunity through collaboration for us to set up a project looking at the domestication history of, of geese? Anyway, we went from this brief conversation in, in, a, in a scientific meeting in, in Sweden to um, Minna actually uh, getting in touch with me and said that there's an opportunity to apply for a grant to the Academy in Finland. And so we did apply for that grant. We were successful. And so we had a, a long-term study looking at the domestication history of, of geese. And so that's where, um, and obviously that study was based in Oulu. And um, so that's really where the, the, the whole connection that I had with, uh, with Orlu uh, came about and I, I visited many times. And, it, and the, the story really carried on and, and there was a, a very sad aspect to it that, that uh, Minna actually passed away about two years um, into the project. Um, at that time, we had already... Um, uh, engaged a PhD uh, student, uh, Maria Heikinen, um, and her PhD studies had started and going well. And um, Yoni Aspi took over as the, uh, the leader of the project. And this project carried on extremely well, and, and it led to other studies that we carried out in, on the domestication of, of geese and, and indeed other studies of, of geese. So, so we've had this, as you say, about 10 years of close collaboration and it's, it's really had all those elements of collaboration that I, I've been talking about and um, has, been a, has been a joy and has been uh, very successful and scientifically important. Sounds like a wonderful story and the world really is a small place when you come to think about it. Jeremy, let's shortly talk about future. Are there any big developments in your field that will be happening in the coming five or ten years that you are really looking forward to? So I, I think the, the field of... Um, uh, that I'm, I'm working in that sort of interface of um, studying organisms in the natural environment and, and understanding the, the genetic basis of evolutionary traits is, is just going uh, extraordinarily rapidly at the moment with um, studies involving the whole uh, of the genome. So, you know, when, when I started my career, I was working with, um, you know, studying chromosomes or working on a, a few genes, but now we're looking at the whole whole genetic com component of organisms and, and actually working out what parts of that uh, genome are important uh, in terms of particular traits that we see in organisms around us, which is which is just fascinating and, and will help us understand that diversity of life that we see. And I, th I think for, for somebody like me who's interested in origins of new species, 
and understanding how organisms function in, in the natural environment, this, this uh, genomic revolution is just a really exciting um, thing and, and is, is going to and is already transforming the, the type of research that people are doing um, and certainly is going to be critical in the next five to ten years and, and beyond. If you think about yourself, is there something you would still like to achieve during your research career? Well, I'm, I'm still intrigued by um, these, these things associated with colonization history. So I, I've talked about how, how I've been interested in how organisms attain their natural distribution, their, their current distribution. And I think what I would be interested uh, to, to be able to achieve in, in the coming years is, is to look for general principles that explain um, those, those distributions that are, that are attained. I, I feel, I, feel I need some sort of space and, and thinking time to, to try and work out those, those, those principles, which I think we we understand to a certain degree but but we don't fully understand so the passion that you that was ignited in your teenage years when marveling at the wonders of the natural world is still very strongly continuing and can be seen from everything you say i think and if we go back a bit, rewinding back to this day, and the reason why we're doing this interview is, of course, that you have been conferred as an honorary doctor of the University of Oul. Uh, in sports terms, how does it feel right now? <laughs> it feels great. <laughs> so in sports terms, it feels like I've uh, just won the game or something. I don't know. No, it's... it's, it's um, no, it's a it's a, a huge honour to be um, conferred this this uh, doctorate, and um, I really appreciate it. And and again, I want to emphasise that that um, receiving this honour is obviously coming to me, but but this honour would not come to me if it wasn't for all those people who. I've worked with and collaborated with my students and, and others who've worked with me. Um, and so I, I sort of feel that this honour is, is not just for me, it's for, for everyone connected with me as well. Um, and so I, 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 feel, I feel it's an honour. The other thing I, I feel about it is that, um, that I... I've really enjoyed uh, my connection with uh, with Oulu and university as well, um, and I so so it just is is a is a great pleasure to to have have the honour connected with um, with with Oulu and Northern Finland, and I I feel I have a, a strong affinity there. I've I've always enjoyed my visits. I've enjoyed exploring the natural environment up there so it's it's just a huge pleasure for me and i i'm so grateful to the university for for conferring this on me absolutely beautifully said and jeremy the final question of this interview is asked exactly the same way from all of our honorary doctors, and I think the time has come to post that question for you too. If you were asked to describe the University of Oulu with three words, 
words. What would those words be and why did you choose them? So the three words I would use um, are welcoming, outward-looking, and supportive. So welcoming I chose because that's the way I've always felt. Whenever I have visited, I have just been treated so well and, and, and I've just had such a wonderful time there. The hospitable, uh, hos hospitality has been, has been amazing. So I, that's why I choose that word. Outward looking, I think, um, you know, the fact that, that um, scientists in that university have engaged with me in, in when I was in Britain and um, uh, in, in the United States, um, you know, again, illustrates the way in which um, the university is, is thinking well beyond um, its, its own confines or e even Finland. And, and, and whenever I go there, there's, there's many collaborations that are taking place um, around the world uh, by researchers at the, at the University of Orlu. In terms of supportive, um, in, all, uh, in all the work that uh, we've done, I, you know, I have been involved in in uh, different phases, and, and I've just felt that uh, strong support from from my colleagues there in in things that I've done, and I hope I've reciprocated as well. But but um, that's been that's been uh, very much the case, and, and also the the university has been supportive in terms of uh, funding various aspects of um, visits that I've had, and and uh, various aspects of the research and and supporting uh, the, the the students um, involved in this project. So so all all three of those words, I, I feel. Um, uh, encapsulate my my opinion of the University of Waterloo. Absolutely wonderful words. Jeremy, this interview has taken us from the dawn of human history to the future and shown us how we all are connected in the great circle of life and how one's career can take you to unexpected places and be blessed with wonderful friends. It has been an honor and a pleasure to talk to you and we are very, very eagerly waiting to meet you here in Oulu when the doctoral conferment ceremony will be organized. Thank you so much and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. I've very much enjoyed um, talking to you and um, yeah, all the best. This was an interview with Honorary Doctor and my guest was Honorary Doctor Professor Jeremy Searle. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.